Nicodemus, flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. Don't marvel that I say to you, you must be born two times. Now, Jesus is showing Nicodemus his greatest need in life if he is going to be included in God's kingdom. Understand there are two kingdoms, and everyone in this room, everyone in this world, is in one of those two kingdoms. You're either in the kingdom of the forgiven, or you're still in the kingdom of the condemned. You're in the kingdom of light, or the kingdom of darkness. You're in the kingdom of God or the kingdom of Satan. The kingdom that will land a person in heaven or the kingdom that will ultimately land a person in hell. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Today's sermon is entitled, Understanding the Second Birth, Part 2. We've been looking this week at the second birth as described by Jesus in the Gospel of John, chapter 3. This discourse came about because of a certain Pharisee named Nicodemus visited Jesus to find out if he was truly the promised Messiah. Last time, Pastor Carl explained what the second birth was. Let's join him now to find out how we can receive the second birth. Take your Bibles, please. Turn to John, chapter 3. We're pleased to have uh, a number of visitors here with us today, and especially Rebecca. Rebecca, if you'd stand up for just a moment, let me embarrass you. Thank you. One of our missionaries in Cambodia, we thank the Lord for you. Now, you'll be interested to know that we've been working our way through the Gospel of John, and I've been so encouraged to hear so many of you respond to the challenge to take this Gospel and go home and study it every week, and a number of you told me you're going through the sermon notes, you're listening to the tape over again. Because you want to be able to sit down, cross the table, and share it with another person. And really, if you can get God's Word in your heart in that way, it will change your life. But let me just say, if you've not taken the challenge yet, it's not too late to take it. But if there is one chapter of Scripture in all the Bible that every Christian ought to know, it's John chapter 3. And so I hope you will read it, reread it, if need be, listen to the message over and over and over again. But know it so clearly, so plainly, that you could sit down with anyone and share how to become a Christian using this passage of Scripture. George Whitfield was the famous 18th century British pastor and evangelist, and he once wrote Benjamin Franklin a letter concerning John chapter 3. Those of you who have studied Franklin's life, you know that he was a great statesman and inventor, but he was also a great communicator and correspondent. And he received letters from all around the world. And Whitfield, the evangelist, wrote Franklin and said, I find that you grow more and more famous in the learned world as you have made such progress in investigating the mysteries of electricity. I now humbly urge you to give diligent heed to the mystery of the new birth. It is the most important and interesting study, and when mastered, will repay you for your pains. Born again, it's not a nice thing, Jesus said it's necessary to enter the kingdom of God. Let's begin reading in verse 11 this morning. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak that which we know and bear witness of that which we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how shall you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And no one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, even the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes may in Him have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him 
should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. Now, I hope you remember the occasion of these words. Jesus had done his first miracle in Cana of Galilee. We studied that in the first half of chapter 2. From there, he spent a few days in Capernaum. Then went down to Jerusalem. And if you remember the second half of chapter 2, he cleanses the temple. And while in Jerusalem, at the end of the Passover, we learn there right at the tail end of chapter 2 that he did many other miracles. And one of those men watching some of the miracles was a rich, religious, respected ruler by the name of Nicodemus. Now, like most Jews who knew their Bible, they knew the approximate time frame, especially if they knew Daniel's prophecy in the ninth chapter, that the Messiah would come. And so he was looking for the consolation of Israel and the inauguration of the promised kingdom. And so I'm sure he thought this one who cleansed the temple with such authority and this one who was doing so many miraculous signs could indeed possibly be the promised Messiah. And so the story of Nicodemus, it's really a picture of the greatest truths in all of the Bible. John 3.16, the greatest text in all of the Bible. And then the verses that follow, the world's greatest test. And so I've entitled this sermon, Understanding the Second Birth, Part 2. We looked at part one last week. We focused on the first 15 verses extensively. But to really appreciate verse 16, we need to get a running start into the context. And I know that repetition is the mother of all good learning. I could probably preach the same sermon three weeks in a row. You wouldn't even know it. So we'll uh, review just a little bit, and then we'll get into the guts of our passage this morning. Now, here's Nicodemus. He comes to the Lord Jesus at night. We don't know why he comes at night. Many speculate about seven different reasons, but we don't know. The text doesn't say. But he comes wanting to speak to the Lord Jesus. He comes wanting to talk to him about the subject of miracles. Of course, Christ doesn't change the the conversation, doesn't change the subject. He speaks to him about a miracle. Really the greatest miracle that anyone could ever experience. The miracle of the second birth. And so the Lord Jesus speaks to the fact that, Nicodemus, you must be born from above. Now remember, the whole purpose John is writing this gospel, he said a lot of signs Jesus did. The signs, the miracles I wrote down, the ones I selected, the seven prior to the resurrection that John recorded, he said, I've written them, that you might believe Jesus is the Christ, and that believing you might have life in his name. And so the Lord Jesus tells Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, verse 3, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus, you can't see, you can't comprehend God's kingdom unless you've been born twice, unless you've been born from above. He asks, how can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? I don't understand a second birth. Truly, truly, Jesus said, Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, we saw it was impossible to take this phrase, water, and put baptism over it. 
Because the Bible is very clear that we're saved by grace through faith and not of works. The baptism, as Matthew 3 indicates, is a work of righteousness. Titus said we're not saved on the basis of deeds done in righteousness. The Bible says that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Paul said the gospel is that Christ died, was buried, and risen from the dead. And he said, I did not come to baptize, but to preach the gospel, which makes baptism the gospel mutually exclusive. But in the context, we argue that he is relating to both the physical and spiritual birth. You must be born, Nicodemus, of water and spirit. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That's your first birth. When the water breaks, that's your physical birth. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. That's your second birth, your birth from above. When the spirit of God comes to live in you and God becomes real. Nicodemus, flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. Don't marvel that I say to you, you must be born two times. Now, Jesus is showing Nicodemus his greatest need in life if he is going to be included in God's kingdom. Understand there are two kingdoms, and everyone in this room, everyone in this world is in one of those two kingdoms. You're either in the kingdom of the forgiven or you're still in the kingdom of the condemned. You're in the kingdom of light, or the kingdom of darkness. You're in the kingdom of God or the kingdom of Satan. The kingdom that will land a person in heaven or the kingdom that will ultimately land a person in hell. So the Lord Jesus wants him to understand that you need to be a completely different person if you're going to enter God's kingdom. I suppose it'd be like taking your favorite fish out of your aquarium and you're so enamored and love this fish so much, you decide to make it your pet and carry it around in a box. Well, you know, obviously, it wouldn't survive very long in that environment. Even so, the Lord Jesus wants Nicodemus to understand that he cannot breathe through the gills of Judaism. He cannot breathe through the gills of ritual heritage. He cannot breathe through the gills of salvation by works and breathe the air that is necessary to enter the kingdom of God. You must be a brand new person, Nicodemus. You have to be born all over again as much as a fish would need to be reconstructed to live outside of the tank. He doesn't understand. He doesn't get the message. He says in verse 9, how can these things be? Please tell me. I don't really see. Now, he's moved from where he was. The first question is, how can a man be born twice? He's dealing with the possibility But now he's dealing with the very process itself. And Jesus responded, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? You are the teacher. The article is present in the original. You're the teacher of teachers. As I said last time, it'd be like saying, You're the reverend, doctor, professor, PhD, pastor, preacher, Nicodemus, and you don't know? You ought to know. The Old Testament teaches it. You should know, Nicodemus. Now, his question implies that he should have known. Are you the teacher of Israel and you don't understand? Because the Old Testament promised a new covenant. Now, up till this time, remember, Jesus has been speaking about the necessity of the birth. Hasn't told him how to get it. But now he's got to unfold it for him. And of course, Nicodemus is quiet. It's no longer a dialogue. It's a monologue. Verse 11, truly, truly, I say to you, we speak that which we know and bear witness of that which we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. Again, I hope you notice the plural verbs. We speak, we know, we bear witness, we've seen. He's speaking here of our witness. Who is he identifying himself with? Certainly not the disciples at this point. They are newly called. They don't understand all these things. 
He is speaking of the Old Testament prophets. Because you see, the Old Testament prophets spoke of a new birth. My professor, Dr. Dwight Pentecost, used to remind me that the New Testament doesn't begin in Matthew 1.1. It begins in Matthew 26.27, when Jesus died on the cross. That's really where the new covenant begins. Now, the word covenant, testament, are parallel synonym words in English. We're talking about a new deal. And the new deal was promised in the Old Testament. Jeremiah the prophet said, there is coming a day when God will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, where I will put my spirit within them and they'll walk in my ways. And no man will say, everybody know the Lord, because they'll all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. Ezekiel said, God will take their heart of stone and turn it into a heart of flesh. So here the Lord Jesus is saying, we speak that which we know and we bear witness of that which we have seen in you. Now you is in the plural. You people, you Nicodemus and you Jews at large, you don't receive our witness if I told you earthly things and you do not believe. How shall you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Now Nicodemus at this point could not understand for the simple reason he's in unbelief. People tell me all the time that this is a record of Nicodemus's conversion. No, it's not. He's in unbelief. Jesus affirms it plainly here. Now, his heart is going to change. Some seeds are planted, and we'll see him three years later, where he, at least by that time, has definitely come to faith. We'll see that before we're done with this gospel. But right now he's in unbelief, and that's the reason he's lost. It's the reason all people are lost. Unbelief is really the mother of all ignorance. In verse 11, notice, he tells Nicodemus that he and the people he represented could, did not receive his witness. And then he says there in verse 12, they did not receive it because they would not believe it. Unbelief is the root of all persistent ignorance. This man didn't get it because he lacked knowledge. He didn't get it because he didn't believe it. And it really doesn't matter how well educated you are or how deep you are in what appears to be ignorance. It doesn't matter if you're a, with a PhD in theology or you're an aborigine living in the jungles of Papua New Guinea. A man who bows down and he worships an idol is doing that because of unbelief. That's the argument of Romans 1. The information he did know to be true of God, he suppressed and he turned the truth of God into a lie and he worshiped the created thing rather than the creator. And so that's why God can hold a man responsible because his unbelief condemns him. Unless someone is on their way to salvation, responding to those things that God has shown him, he does not understand because he will not understand. Now, I know folks will tell you, well, you know, I'm an atheist or I'm an agnostic and, or they'll tell you about how they reason their way to God. Listen. You don't have to reason your way to God. Now, God may use apologetics to affirm what you already know to be true in your heart. But please understand the apologetics that's, that 1 Peter 3.15 is talking about is not the kind of apologetics we do today. You don't find that anywhere in the New Testament. He is speaking about the appeal for men to believe. And men who are in ignorance are in rebellion. That's what Jesus will argue before we're done. I told you earthly things, and you don't believe. How shall you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Now, while the new birth is from above, and it is, it is in a sense earthly, 
Why? Because it can be seen here on earth. Its effects are experienced here on earth. In fact, if you don't have a new birth before you leave earth, you'll never go to heaven. Nicodemus, if you don't believe the simpler things, how can you be expected to believe the more advanced things? That's the thought behind it. If you stumble over the elementary points of entry into the kingdom of God that takes place on earth, then how can I begin to explain to you heavenly things about those things that are yet to come? Now, Nicodemus is the teacher of Israel. I'm sure thought that he was a teacher of heavenly things. But Jesus, in essence, is saying, some teacher of heavenly things you are, you don't even get the earthly things. So Jesus put the new birth in earthly terms because it takes place here. I remember the spot, the place, the hour, the moment I was saved. I can point it to you. Not everyone can, but I can. It took place, a place on the campus at Boston College when I was 18 years old. But here's Nicodemus. If you don't understand this earthly miracle, how can I tell you what's yet to come? And then he says with absolute authority on this subject that he addresses in no one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, even the Son of Man. The Lord Jesus is saying, I can speak with absolute authority on heavenly things because no one has ever gone to heaven and lived there and then come back to tell about it. Now, Jesus didn't ascend into heaven and then descend. No, the Son of Man descended from heaven to earth because heaven was his home. He didn't need some vision, as these cultists say they have today. Heaven is his home, and so he can speak with absolute authority. He wants Nicodemus to know that what he's talking about is not some fantasy, it's real. And so Jesus doesn't leave him in the dark. He goes on and he tells him how to get it. Notice he appeals to him with an illustration from the Old Testament. Spurgeon once said that illustrations are like windows of light that open up the truth in a sermon. And of course, the way the Lord Jesus deals with Nicodemus is different from the way he deals with the Samaritan woman. She was ignorant of the scriptures, so he didn't use scriptural illustrations. But he did with this man because he knew the scripture. Verse 14. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes may in him have eternal life. Now, the illustration comes from where? Numbers what? Numbers 21, good. Boy, I had a chorus in the first service. I think you all know that, but I, I want to refresh your mind with this passage because you need to be able to walk through it with your eyes closed. Again, if there's one passage in all the Bible that you ought to be able to explain, it's John 3, but the way the new birth comes is impossible to understand apart from the illustration in Numbers 21. They set out the children of Israel from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient because of the journey. The people spoke against God and Moses. Why have you brought us up the, out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no food, no water, and we loathe this miserable bread, the manna. And the Lord sent fiery serpents. We saw their fiery and that they're reddish in color, but they also bit like fire. He sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. So the people came to Moses. We've sinned because we've spoken against the Lord in you. Intercede, pray with the Lord that he may remove the serpents from us. Then only one could go to the Lord God. Today, if you are a believer, the Bible says you're a priest. You're a priest of God. You have direct access to the Father. But here Moses intercedes or prays for the people. The Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard. It shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he shall live. 
So he made a bronze serpent. He set it up there on a pole on the standard. And it came about that if a serpent bit any man, when he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. So God had judged his people. They had been bit. They were dying all over the place. The venom was in their veins. They couldn't read the Torah more. They couldn't pray more. They couldn't worship more to do anything to change their state because the wages of sin is death. And so they cry out to God Almighty for deliverance and God, their judge, becomes God, their savior. Of course, the remedy is in the likeness of the one that bit them because of the analogy that God wants to make with Christ. And God promised that if anyone would just believe his promise by looking at the bronze serpent raised high, they would live. Now, I don't know how Moses did it. Maybe he carried it on that pole through the multitudes. There's some two million people in the camp. I don't know that it could have been seen all from one spot, but it's on high, and as they probably walked through the camp, all could see it. And God wanted all to see it, because God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And of course, that symbol, a snake wrapped around a pole, is on every ambulance all around the world. Most people don't know it. It comes from Numbers chapter 21. It's a symbol of the American Medical Association. Don't tell the ACLU that. If they find out, they'll have it taken off. <laughs> now look in verse 14. Circle three key words, as, so, and must. As, so, and must. They really unlock the verse. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so... Must the Son of Man be lifted up? See, my friends, when you chose to sin with Adam, you were born a sinner. Now, when Adam sinned, the Bible says in Romans 5 and verse 12, all of us sinned. You say, I don't understand it. I don't understand it either. But I know it's true because God said it, that in the loins of Adam was the whole human race. So when Adam chose to disobey God, the Bible says in Romans 5, 12, we sinned with him. We chose with him. And so we inherit that sin. It's original sin. We're born in sin. We're sinners by nature, by birth, by choice, by action. And so everyone who has ever descended from Adam has had the sinner's birth. And so they're left spiritually blind. They cannot see the kingdom of God. They are left spiritually separated. They cannot enter the kingdom of God. And they are left spiritually sinful because that which is born of the flesh is flesh. And there's nothing the world can offer for this remedy from sin that eternal, the, the bite of eternal death has brought. But the analogy is God's answer. As the bronze serpent on the pole was God's remedy for these snake bites, so the Son of God lifted on a cross is God's remedy for sin. And so when the pole was lifted up, any Israelite who looked lived. And even so, is the Lord Jesus Christ is lifted up. Anyone who looks, lives. Now, notice the word must. He must be lifted up. Now, why must he be lifted up? Understand, this word must doesn't mean in the sense that God had to die for us because God owed us absolutely nothing except the wrath that our sin deserves. God did not have to become a man. God did not have to lift his son up on a cross to die for you. If God had done absolutely nothing and left us in our sin and the punishment that it deserves, he would have been absolutely just. So in what sense is this must? Well, because God, as he will explain in verse 16, is a God of love. 
Right after man's sin, Genesis 3, God makes the first promise of a redeemer. And it becomes the promise of the whole Old Testament. And God keeps his promises. So the Son of Man must be lifted up. Secondly, he must be lifted up because the Bible says the life is in the blood. You take your blood out, you're a dead cookie. And so without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness for your sin. And so the whole sacrificial system of animals' blood that was shed was symbolic of the Lamb of God who would ultimately come and die on your behalf. And so God kept his promise but he must be lifted up because blood had to be shed and God must justly deal with sin. Paul will say in Romans 3 that God is just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. If God is the justifier, the one who declares us righteous, declares us forgiven, declares us as if we had never sinned, as if we had always obeyed, if he's the justifier, that makes us the justifiees. We can't do it. We can't justify ourselves. So God has to be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. So God is able to declare us righteous justly without violating his character through the giving of his son. But it's not enough that he died. Man must believe. Every snake-bitten Israelite had to look to live. And I'm sure there are many who thought it was absolute folly. Many who never even crawled out of their tents to take a glance at the brazen serpent because they thought it foolishness. And even so, many today, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, find the preaching of the cross to be foolishness, but it is the power of God to those who will believe to save you. And so he says that whoever believes may in him, in Christ, have eternal life. It's not found in religion or some religious act or ceremony, but in a person. Now, it's interesting because the brazen serpent is only mentioned one other time in all of Scripture. Right out in your margin, would you? 2 Kings 18, 2 Kings 18, 1 through 4. Let me read it to you. Now it came about in the third year of Hoshea, the son of Elah, king of Israel, that Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, became king. And he was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Abi, the daughter of Zechariah. And he did right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father David had done. He removed the high places and broke down the sacred pillars and cut down the Asherah. These were places of idolatry. And he also, note, broke in pieces the bronze serpent which Moses had made. For until those days, the sons of Israel burned incense to it, and it was called Nehushtan, that is a piece of brass. 700 plus years later, they're burning smelly little incense candles to this brazen serpent, and they make it an object of worship. Man hasn't changed much. People today cling to their church membership, to some aisle they walked, to some baptism they had, to some confirmation they experienced, to some religious rite or ceremony but unless you look to him, the Lord Jesus, it is absolute folly. If you enjoyed today's message, you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program John 008. Don't forget that tomorrow, Pastor Carl's wife Audrey is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. 
You can hear more of Audrey's messages on the Search the Scriptures app found on the iTunes and Google Play Store. Also, check out Audrey's podcast, Rare But Real, on Apple, Google, and Spotify podcast platforms. You can also listen to her podcast at searchthescriptures.org. We hope that you will join us next week as we continue to search the scriptures.